Good morning. Thank you, Caleb. We're diving into an interesting passage of scripture here at the end of chapter four. But I want to start by asking you, how did it go this past week with my challenge not to say anything critical of anyone at all? How did it go? Did you make it out of the building? Did you make it through lunch? Did anyone make it into Monday? It's a hard challenge. Hard challenge not being critical. But now we're moving on to something that perhaps is even more challenging and difficult for us to apply. Uh, something after James kind of hits his audience hard in the beginning of chapter four, he doesn't let up as he goes toward the end of chapter four because he says that God has something to do not only with our worldliness and, and those things we discussed last week and our, our critical spirits, but God also has something to say about our money, our wealth, our riches, and our schedules, our time, and what we do with our lives. In a word, God has something to say about our stuff, the stuff of life. God has something to say. Now, maybe you're wondering, how does this connect this section at the end of the chapter with the beginning of the chapter? Well, remember, we paved the road of repentance, or rather, James paved it for us, of submitting to God and, and mourning over our sin. And that road of repentance runs through what we do with our stuff as well. God wants us to submit everything to him, which includes our material possessions. It includes our money. It includes our time. In fact, these things can often be the things that cause some of those conflicts he was mentioning earlier in the chapter. In fact, some have said some of the best ways to evaluate ourselves spiritually is to look at our bank statements, to look at our schedules. What do we value? God has something to say about that. And in this section, as in the last section, the principle, this big overarching biblical principle, it's a gospel principle. We find it in, in many different passages of scripture. And it is this. Made a graphic for you to kind of visualize it. If you go low, if you humble yourself, God will lift you up. But if you exalt yourself, if you're proud, if you go high, God will bring you down. That applied last week as we talked about worldliness and how we treat others, and it certainly applies this week as we talk about our riches and how sometimes we can be prideful about our schedules and about what we do with our stuff. Now, every culture, I think, has its strengths and its weaknesses. And we have many strengths here in America that I'm certainly grateful for. After many years of, of struggle, we do tend to treat people equally. We tend to have a, a sort of equal treatment under the law here in America. All men are created equal in our founding documents. And it's taken years, but we're living that out. Compared to the rest of the world, I think we do a pretty good job at that. Compared to, let's say, other places that have this social hierarchy where the rich are perhaps elevated. I don't know if you've ever watched Downton Abbey. If not, you'll want to you know, throw your American flag at the screen because there's just these hierarchies, the rich people and the poor people. Now, we certainly are affected by that here. If you've heard of the Murdoch cases down in the low country, we find somebody who thought because he came from a powerful family, had money, was a powerful lawyer, he thought he could get away with certain things or deserved special treatment. And we reacted strongly against that, didn't we? I mean, all, you listen to all the podcasts, watch all the news. We're all riveted by that because we don't like it when somebody thinks they should be treated differently just because they have certain things. That's an anti-American sentiment. So we have some good strengths, and, and we're grateful for the men and women who've, who've fought and died to preserve um, that ability to treat people equally under the law. But we also have our weaknesses. And if James were writing his letter to us here in America, I think this is one of the things he would identify. Have you ever wondered about that question? If we got a letter from the Apostle Paul, what would it say? 
I've seen somewhere on the internet, it basically says, I don't even know where to start with you guys. Uh, I don't know if it would say that. Hopefully, you'd have some hope for us, just like the other churches. But if James's audience, if the believers in the New Testament time were here today, what would they see that'd be like, ooh, wow, I can't believe they tolerate that. I can't believe they allow that sin or, or that idea to go on. I think there's many we could identify, but I think one that stands out to me is our materialism. We like our stuff, don't we? We like accumulating stuff. We like getting more and more. We like making more and more money. We like pursuing the things of this world and try to get as much of it as we possibly can. And we can become very complacent in our pursuit of that so much so that we don't even recognize it. And yet, simultaneously, we're very discontent and we constantly want more and more and more stuff. And I think at the root of this is this idea of individualism, or you could say self-sufficiency. We think we're in charge, we're strong, we're independent, we don't need anybody, and, and that spirit leads to us just trying to grab a hold of as much as we can and be self-centered, have this rugged American individualism that neglects others. Now, if you don't believe me on this, well, just wait a few weeks and we will come to Black Friday. And we'll see a demonstration of this. Perhaps you're getting ads already. Tis the season to be materialistic, right? And if you really don't believe me, go down to Hobby Lobby tomorrow and walk the aisles of all the Christmas decorations. Just the decorations. There's a lot of that stuff. Now, I am not condemning decorating for Christmas. In fact, if you need pastoral blessing to convince your husband to put up the Christmas tree, I hereby grant it to you. Okay, you can decorate. I think it's great. Listen to Christmas music. I've been listening to it. It's great. Uh, but Christmas sometimes reveals in our hearts a love of stuff, of getting stuff and accumulating stuff. Uh, we're, we're centered on that instead of being centered on what God has for us. But on this topic, as with last week, I want you to again draw the circle around yourself and choose to stay in your circle and evaluate your own heart to see if you're materialistic. I don't want you to be nudging your spouse or looking down the aisle and thinking, ah, the people who have more money than me, this is really their sermon that they need to listen to. No, we all are tempted in this area. So draw your circle, stay in your circle, and evaluate. Do I have a materialistic heart? Do I just want stuff? And then why? Why is that within me? These desires, that war within me that sometimes cause conflicts outside, as James taught us, what's going on in my heart? What desires are at war there? And I think one of the things I've found in my heart in this area is a desire to feel safe. We want to accumulate stuff. We want to have our schedules all outlined and everything just kind of set in our lives because we think it gives us a sense of safety, security. We can relax. We have enough in the bank account. We have food on the table. Uh, we have a, a good enough reputation. We're a hard enough worker. And so we can become content because... We think these things give us a sense of safety, a sense of steadfastness, but they cannot do that for us. Maybe for a time we'll feel like that, oh, we got everything set, but they'll ultimately let us down because they are a false god. They are a false idol that cannot give us steadfastness. And at the end of the day, we, you and I, we are not sovereign over the universe. We are not king. We are not in charge. We are not in control but we do know one person who is. So a big idea I want you to take away this morning is this. Our shepherd, our good, good shepherd, he actually makes us safer than being a billionaire. He makes us safer than having all the money in the world. He brings us more security, more steadfastness than anything money or schedule or profit can bring to us. 
We need to do some Bible math here. Stuff does not equal safety, no matter how much we get. Our sovereign God gives us safety and security, and we can rest in him. We can find safety in the good shepherd, not in our stuff. God is the one who makes our life steadfast. Jesus is better than our stuff. We have to believe that. And James is going to lay it out for us and to kind of expose our heart. And he's going to start, first of all, with exposing our self-sufficiency when it comes to our planning. Planning, as much as we might do it, it does not postpone death. Look back at chapter 4, verse 13 through 17 through the end of the chapter. Planning does not postpone death. I don't know if you guys are planners. I like to plan things out. You know, got everything squared away in your mind. I got everything down to a T. But no matter how much we do that, even if we have a plan B, C, D, E, no matter how much we plan, it cannot postpone death. It cannot stop time. Now, perhaps reading these verses, some questions came to your mind. The first one being, wait a second, is James saying that God doesn't want us to make any plans at all? Are we just not supposed to plan? Are we just supposed to live life with zero plans? No, that's not what he's saying. He actually says, make your plans, but insert these words. Hey, we will live. We will do this or that if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills. So plan, but don't plan as if God doesn't exist. Don't make your plans as a functional atheist. Don't live your life without thinking about what God wants you to do with your week. I find myself doing this all the time. You get up, you get going, even doing ministry stuff, and you never stop to think, wait a second, did I ask God for help? Did I ask him what he'd have me do today? Or did I just go about my day planning everything out how I wanted it to be? Jesus uh, talks about this guy in a parable in Luke chapter 12, and he had everything planned out. Man, he was getting so much stuff. He started building all these barns, and he said, man, I got everything squared away. So soul, take your rest. Relax. Take it easy. Everything is squared away. And God told him, you fool, today you will die. And then what will happen to all that stuff, all the stuff you had planned out? You had it all planned except for one thing. You did not plan for your death. And yet that is what happened. Do not be rich in material things without being rich toward God, Jesus tells us. So God is against planning without contributing him into the, those plans, without thinking of God. But then James himself asks a question here that perhaps you too have. What is your life? James asks. What is life about? If we shouldn't be planning as if atheists, what is life about? The people he's writing to, they thought they were superheroes. They thought they, they had it all squared away. Nobody could hurt them. Nobody could stop them. Everything was under control. But James says, what is your life? It's actually a what? What does he say their life is? It's a mist. A mist that's here today and gone tomorrow. It's a beautiful picture for us that we can really wrap our heads around. Beautiful but sad. Uh, think about your coffee cup in the morning. You take the lid off. Or you pour it into a mug, and the steam rises, and then eventually it goes away. That is our life. Or picture a lake. In early morning, there's fog on the lake. But then as the sun rises, it drifts away. Or picture your, your breath on a cold morning like we've had this past week. You're out there, you breathe, there's the breath, and then quickly it disappears. James says, that is your life. And this reminds us of the book of Ecclesiastes. You remember the book of Ecclesiastes that we went through back in 2018? It was written by King Solomon as he looked back on his life 
He had all the riches. He had all the wisdom. He had all the plans. He had all the success. And yet he said, it was all vanity. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Or we could say all is steam, vapor, mist. It's nothing. It does not last. There's nothing new under the sun. He says life is like chasing the wind. We run, we run, we try to grab the wind, but we can't ever get it. It's futile. It's empty. The days are long, but the years are short, as any of us know with kids. Time flies, whether you're having fun or not. It just moves on and on and on, and it seems empty. It seems to be just missed. And even the unsaved world recognizes this. I mean, how many movies, how many shows, how many works of literature could be summarized with this? Death comes for us all. Death is coming. How many shows and movies are about avoiding death? I mean, think about how many movies or shows are about time travel. Or if somehow a character gets killed off and then they come back to life. Our culture is obsessed with this idea of death and avoiding it. We're reversing it. How can we avoid this terrible thing that's coming on us? But I hate to tell you, there is no time travel machine. I didn't hope you didn't have your hopes set on that. There is no time travel machine. Time instead marches on for all of us. The road goes ever on. Kids grow up and they move out. The economy it rises and then it'll fall. Presidents will come and go. Athletes will get old and they will retire. The latest iPhone model will quickly become outdated. Round and round and round the earth goes, the sun rising and setting. And no matter how much money you have, no matter how shrewd you are with your business plans, no matter how planned out your life is, you cannot stop death. You cannot stop time. It goes on. Proverbs warns us in 27.1, do not boast about tomorrow, for you don't know what a day may bring forth. We don't know what will happen tomorrow. I've heard it said in a meme that adulthood is saying, after this season, I'll be a little less busy. And you just say it over and over and over again until you die. Isn't that the truth? I just need to get past this season. But we don't know what's coming. And round and round the earth goes and time moves on. My wife and I experienced the reality of not knowing what the future would bring just yesterday when we found ourselves in an accident. So the Lord must really be teaching me something. I, I did not pray for another sermon illustration, but the Lord answered that prayer anyway. Um, we were headed down to Georgia to visit my sister, and a car pulled out and hit us. Scary thing. Thankfully, we're all okay. Uh, we're doing well. It's a scary thing, especially when you have a child, when your wife is pregnant. Oh, it's just scary. It makes you consider, what is life? I didn't know this would happen. I didn't plan for this to happen. In fact, perhaps the Lord is teaching me a lesson because I thought, you know, on this car ride, I can get quite a bit done. I could work on my sermon. I could listen to this. I could talk to Carissa about this. I got it all planned out. And then all of a sudden this happens and the day is completely derailed. How true that is in our lives and how true it has been this past year, right? I mean, think back to a year ago this time. Or think back maybe a couple years, maybe five years, maybe a decade ago. Could you ever have predicted you would be in the situation you're in right now? Or our country would be here? Or our church would be here? We could never have predicted it. Now, we love plot twists in our books and movies, but we don't like them so much when they come into our lives. When life takes a turn that we don't expect. And yet, that's what happens. We do not know what's going to happen tomorrow. We do not know what will happen next year. We do not know 
very seriously. The day we will die, we do not know. But we live like we're going to live on forever. And James calls us out as a very serious sin. Now, why? Why, James? Why is planning so dangerous? Look down in verses 16 and 17. He calls it boasting and arrogance. He calls it evil, a sin. He says we have no excuse. We know the right thing to do is to acknowledge God in all our plans, but we don't do it. And so, therefore, it is a sin. We are arrogant. We are boasting, which is one of those things called out in 1 John 2 as an element of the world, the pride of life. We think we are sovereign. We think we are independent. We don't need anyone else. We plan our lives out as if God isn't there. And then what happens? Life takes turns and we get upset. We get anxious because we cannot plan life out. And Oswald Chambers said, all our fret and worry is caused by calculating without God. That's how we do our lives. We calculate our lives out, but we do not put God into that equation. It's a dangerous thing, says James. So what does he want us to do? What should we do instead? Should we live the Hakuna Matata life? Ah, no worries. We'll just take it as it comes. Uh, don't worry. Be happy, y'all. Come on, let's just relax. Eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Is that the mindset he's calling us to? No. No, he's saying, if the Lord wills, we should insert that into all our plans. Lord willing is a very, very appropriate thing to say as believers. As long as you mean it, as long as you're intentional about it. Maybe you know somebody like that where, you know, you're making plans and they say, well, Lord willing, I will do this. That's actually a very good thing. It can be a helpful reminder for us to put into our everyday conversations that we make plans, but God is sovereign and his will may be different from ours. It's a good reminder. Well, what does this look like living in light of God's will? Well, we have a few examples in scripture. First of all, we have our Lord and Savior Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. We even sang a song that made reference to this. There he prayed and he said, Lord, take this cup from me. He, he, he asked God if there was another way besides the cross. And that gives us an example. We can ask God for things. And yet, how did Jesus end that? Not my will, but yours be done. He surrendered himself to God's will. And he went through with the cross. He submitted himself to his father's plan and went through it for our salvation. But you say, oh, that's Jesus. He's sinlessly perfect. Of course, he could do that. Well, let's take somebody else. Let's take the apostle Paul. He made plans. In fact, we have a lot of his plans in scripture. I've been reading the New Testament, and all of a sudden, Paul is waxing eloquent on his travel itinerary. Why is that in the Bible? What's well, given us an example of how to make plans. And he even inserts when he's talking to a church in Acts 18 that he will return if the Lord wills. He made a lot of plans. He told the church of Rome, I'm going to come visit you. Then I'm going to go to Spain. He had it planned out. And yet he was submissive to God's plan. And God's will wasn't for him to get to Rome, but in a very unusual way. He was going to get to Rome through years in prison, through a shipwreck, and under house arrest. Paul made his plans, but he submitted to what God had for him. We can say this in our lives. Everything is going according to plan. Everything is going according to plan. Now, you can't say that about your own plans. People would look at you like, what? Everything is going according to plan? No. Everything is going according to God's plan. It's just not my plan. Everything is operating according to God's plan. And this is especially helpful for us when we face interruptions in life. Do you love interruptions? I don't know who does. I mean, who likes to just be working away and all of a sudden you're interrupted or make these plans and ooh, it all of a sudden takes a left turn. 
But John Newton had a very helpful quote that I've referenced before that's helped me when it comes to when my plans don't work out. He said this, when I hear a knock at my study door, I hear a message from God. It may be a lesson of instruction, perhaps a lesson of patience. But since it is his message, it must be interesting. That's a very optimistic way of looking at it. You're living your life, you got an interruption, and you say, now this is very interesting. It's like I'm living in a movie. There has come a plot twist in my life. This must be a lot more interesting than what I had planned. All right, God, let's see how this goes. When interruptions come, we submit our will to God's and admit that he knows better than we do. And some pictures and images in scripture help us with this. We've been using one already. God is our shepherd. Can you look back at your life and say with Jacob at the end of Genesis that God has been my shepherd all my days? In the ups and downs of life, he's been there. He's guided me. He's taken me through, through good times, green pastures, still waters, but he's also taken me to the valley of the shadow of death. But all along the way, he was with me, tenderly guiding and shepherding me. He is the God of all my days. Even when my seasons change, he stays the same. He's always, always been there. Well, perhaps an image helps you of God as the artist. Do you see God's handiwork in your life? Do you see sovereign pieces of God's artwork scattered in your life? Coincidences, run-ins with people that you never could have planned out. God is the great artist, and he's painting a beautiful picture with our lives, even in the difficult times. Even when we look back, and sometimes that's the only way we could do this. We have to look back on our lives and see how God brought us through difficult times and see how God even brushed over our mistakes and our failures and he painted over it greater grace and brought us to this point. Sometimes we have to look back to see God at work. God as shepherd, God as artist, God as the author of our lives. If you're a nerd like me, you like watching TV shows and movies for Easter eggs, little, little hidden things that connect to something else. Ooh, it's super fun. And you might think, that's really weird, Matt, but I just enjoy doing that. You know, oh, they put just a little thing into that show that maybe five people noticed. Well, that's how God actually operates on a much bigger scale in our lives. Whether we notice it or not, God is working in little and big ways to accomplish his purposes, to sanctify us, to draw us closer to himself. A quote from John Piper might be helpful for you. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life. And you may be aware of three of them. We don't have eyes to see all that God is doing. But he is working. He is working. How many things can you find this week that God is doing in your life? Even when we have to wait, God is working. Even when things don't go according to our plans. Even, dare I say, when bad things happen. What about bad things, man? Is that really still true? Maybe for you, you're not like these people James is writing to where you're arrogantly planning things. Maybe you're not planning at all because you've made your plans and they've all fallen apart. And now you're just discouraged. Now you're devastated. You've given up making plans. Your life is such a mess. How can what James says here bring me hope in my dark time? Well, because God is still working in those seasons as well. And as we just sang, as we just testified, as we see in the book of Genesis, he can take even what the enemy means for evil and turn it for our good and for his glory. There is not a chapter in our lives that he cannot use. 
even, yes, our own sin. Of course, God is not the author of sin. James makes that very clear. And yet the Bible also makes clear that God can take even our mistakes and turn them for good. He can turn them for good as much as he detests it. Or perhaps other people sin against you. He grieves with you. He cares for you. But he can take those things and use them as well. And so if we find ourselves in a difficult season, perhaps in a waiting season, uh, perhaps this phrase from a Christmas song I've been listening to will help you. If you're not done working, I am not done waiting. That's a great prayer. He is not done working. His spirit is at work among us. And so we wait. We trust. We have steadfast faith in him. Now, I know this might sound trite or confusing to many of you. I know this has been a difficult year, has it not? It's been a challenging year for many of us. I look out and I see folks who've really experienced the mist of life, the, the, the frailty of life, and, and you've experienced death this year of parents or spouses, family members, even your own children. Death is a reality or broken relationships, so much mess in my life. And yet still we say, if you will, let your will be done. Do something with this mess of my life. Oh, Lord, turn it for good and for your glory. Quote from Spurgeon might be encouraging. The sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head at night, giving perfect peace. Man, I've worn a rut in that pillow this year. Rest in God's sovereign shepherding care of your life. I was laying awake the other night and this idea came to me as I was thinking through all the chaos of life and the lives around me. I thought, wait a second, what do I believe? What is true? And the sovereignty of God was comforting to me, was a pillow to me. In fact, I have to admit, many of you know I, I am a terrible, terrible nerd. And I'll tell you just how terrible of a nerd I was. Uh, a quote from Tolkien came to my mind. How terrible of me. A verse should have come to my mind, shouldn't it? But a quote from Tolkien came to me where he says that even evil proves itself in the end to be God's instrument. God can even use evil. Not the author of evil. He is still good. And yet he is still sovereign. He is still the shepherd. He has not lost control of the wheel of history. And he can use even evil to accomplish his ultimate ends. We saw that with Paul persecuting the church and spreading the church around. We saw it with Joseph, his brothers throwing him into a pit. And yet God preserving their lives ahead of time. We see it ultimately in the evil of the cross. And God using that for our very redemption. All is going according to plan. God's will will be done. Do you believe it? Do you submit to it? Do you admit not my plans, but your plans be done this week? Do you admit that you are dependent on God? Or do you try to be self-sufficient? Do you try to plan your life out as a functional atheist without acknowledging God's work? Well, if all our planning and all our making of profit, it cannot stop time, it cannot stop death, then how much less can it keep our life from trouble? Stuff cannot make us safer. We think, hey, if we just got all the plans, if we just make enough money, then our lives will be okay. Everything will be great. But James comes in at the beginning of chapter 5, and he just pops that bubble he pops our false dependency on our stuff and says it actually cannot make you safer. He actually says it's rotten. Here's some pictures for you. James uses a lot of pictures here in chapter 5, 1 through 3, to depict what actually is the case with our stuff. 
It is rotten. He says, judgment is coming upon you who are rich and depend on your stuff. In fact, he says, it is already here. It's already upon you. Misery, rottenness, the moth devouring their clothes, corrosion of even things like gold. Oh, they put their dependence on gold. Gold can't rust. And yet he says, it will fail. It will fade. It is corroded. Could have used a word. Corrosion could also mean poison. They are infecting themselves with their riches. He says they're eating their flesh with fire because they're depending on their stuff. Is that how you view your stuff? Do you look at all the stuff you have, your house, your car, all your bank account, everything you've got, and you say, oh, this is pretty nice. I feel pretty safe and secure. Or do you view it how the Bible views it? It's rotten, actually. It's, it's already decomposing. It will not last. This isn't the first time James has brought this imagery of the uh, impermanence of our stuff. Glance back a few pages into chapter 1, verse 9. should just be a few pages over. Chapter 1, verse 9 through 11. Pastor Robert preached this chapter. It's very similar to the beginning of chapter 5. Chapter 1, verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Riches will fade. He's reiterating this concept that we saw in more detail in chapter 4. Those who are humble, who are lowly, he says, oh, you could actually boast in your exaltation. But those of you who exalt yourself, the rich, you will actually be humiliated, he says. You will be brought down in all your pride. The way up is the way down. So either go low or God will bring you low. Riches, he says, are like a vase of flowers. You got your wife flowers recently. You bring them home. They look so nice, but they don't last. They're pretty, but they fade very, very quickly. And the rich, they make all these plans, he says. He, they, they make all these pursuits, and we saw that in chapter 4. They've got plans to go to this town and that town. They've got it all squared away. And yet, the richest person for all their plans and all their money, they're just as much missed as the rest of us. They fade just like the rest of us. The billionaire will blow away. But what God gives us is an inheritance that is imperishable. First Peter 1 in chapter 5 say, it will not fade away, a crown of glory that does not fade. So we can choose one or the other. We can choose to go low, even if it means we have to give up some of our stuff, or we don't have all the success we could have, but we have an eternal inheritance, imperishable, versus the proud who collect all their stuff, but it all fades. It's like the contrast between the palmetto and the pumpkin. The palmetto and the pumpkin. Palmetto trees are very, very enduring. In fact, they could even survive hurricanes. And there was a fort in Charleston made out of palmetto logs that when the British came and launched their cannons at it, they just bounced right off. That's why the palmetto is on our state flag. The palmetto is enduring. And generally, trees are steadfast. When we were out in Colorado, we went by our, our childhood home where I grew up, and there was the tree, the blue spruce that we planted. I'm sure that house has had many repairs. I know I sure have changed a lot in those 11 years, and yet there's the tree. It is enduring, growing. That is how trees are, contrasted to how pumpkins are. Did you pick a pumpkin this year? Did you carve a pumpkin this year? 
and is your wife nudging you because you forgot to take it and throw it in the trash because it's shriveling up and turning black? They don't last very long. Pumpkins fade very, very quickly. They rot out before we know it. So would you rather invest your life savings into the palmetto or into the pumpkin? Into what will last or what will not last? Steadfast faith, that's the theme of our series. This steadfast faith that James is calling for, it will bring us stability and safety, not the stuff of life. If we have steadfast faith in the one who does not change, there is no shadow of turning with God. If we put our lives and our faith on him, it is something enduring. But if enriches, it will fade. And remember earlier in this chapter, as Pastor Robert preached it, he said we can count joy even in our trials because they make us steadfast. We can ask for wisdom and choose not to be double-minded and unstable in all our ways. We can choose to have steadfast faith. Do you want to be a steadfast person? We all respect them. Those people who are steady in the storm, it's because they put their faith and dependence on God. Do you want to be a palmetto in a world of pumpkins? Do you want to be a container ship in a world where everybody's falling off their paddleboards? Steady, steadfast, because you've set your faith on someone solid. Now, perhaps you're wondering, after all of this talk of the dangers of riches and our stuff, maybe a question has arisen in your mind. Is God anti-rich? Does God not like rich people? Well, let's have this third point here. Wealth does not give worth, either positive or negative. It's not that you are lesser if you have less nor are you lesser if you have more. Stuff does not make you special. It does not make you saved or not. It contributes of no spiritual value. My worth is not in what I own. Now, perhaps you've heard from coworkers or or family members, something like this more popular idea these days, that God is always, always on the side of the poor, and he absolutely hates and detests rich people. Is that true biblically? Well, here's a few important observations for us. First of all, it is important to note that rich people are held up as positive examples in Scripture. We saw it in the book of James, where he commended Abraham for his faith in chapter 2, verse 21. Joseph of Arimathea, who gave his grave to Jesus. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, who Jesus pursued with kindness. So rich people are not always negative in Scripture. And the Bible is far more concerned about the heart behind our riches. In fact, in 1 Timothy 6, Verse 10, you probably know this. It says, money is the root of all evil, right? No, it is the love of money that is the root of all evil. It is far more important what's going on internally than externally, just like what we talked about with worldliness. Where is our heart at? Is our heart set on these things? Paul tells Timothy to instruct the rich not to set their hope on these uncertain riches, but on God. He doesn't tell them to not be rich. He tells them to evaluate their hearts and where they're depending. But there is a general biblical principle that riches can keep someone from God. Remember the story of Jesus with the rich young ruler? He had compassion on him. And yet, the rich young ruler turned away. He turned away from Jesus because he couldn't part with his riches. And Jesus said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for rich people to come to him. And the disciples are amazed. And he says, well, what is impossible with man is possible with God. There's a general biblical principle that riches can choke out the word. And Jesus blesses the poor and calls woe on the rich in Luke chapter 6. So, riches can be a hindrance 
to coming to Christ. Not only that, but rich people generally, a general biblical observation, rich people can oppress God's people. And that's what we see here in uh, verses 4 through 6 of chapter 5. James condemns these people. Look back at verse 4. He says, you have kept the wages. You have not paid these laborers, and you kept it back by fraud. He calls them out. They didn't pay them. In fact, he even says they murdered the righteous person. They condemned them, likely in a court setting. They got them arrested and taken out of the picture. And the righteous, in contrast to it, verse 6, he does not resist you. They followed Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. They turned the other cheek. Now, the righteous may not resist you, he says, but God resists the proud, we saw in chapter 4. God resists them. In fact, he says, the cries of these oppressed people have reached the ears, verse 4, of the Lord of hosts. The God of angel armies hears them, even when none of the rest of the world hears these people who are crying out to God. And God will do something about it, and he calls judgment on these people. And then finally... The church is typically not made up. Sorry, the church is typically made up of the lowly, not the rich and famous people of the world. And I think this is a general observation. I hope you're not terribly offended by it. I hope the church of Corinth wasn't offended by it when Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 said, you know what, guys? Not many of you were wise, powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. Instead, God chose what is foolish and weak, what is insignificant and despised in the world. Generally, that's who comprises the church. Now you say, can a rich person be a believer? Well, of course, it's all by faith. But the majority of believers, both in James' day and in our day today, are not who the world would consider the cool, the elite, the powerful. God chooses the weak things to confound the strong, the foolish things to confound the wise. And we often get caught up thinking about, oh, I wonder if that celebrity is, a, is a really a believer or that athlete or that politician, which of course we want them to be saved, but we don't need celebrities to become Christians to validate our faith because we believe in the one who already has all power and will set all things right. We don't need to be cool or acceptable and have these people on our side. God chooses the poor, James says, to make them rich in faith. Chapter 2, verse 5, he takes beggars and turns them into royalty. Christ became poor to make us the poor rich, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. And so we should be thankful that God chose people like us. Because quite frankly, we're all a little weird. A little odd. A little on the outside. We are the outcasts, the lowly. In fact, turn to your neighbor and say, you're weird. Go ahead. Now turn to your other neighbor and say, I'm weird. All right, we did it. We admitted it. We admitted we are the lowly. We are the unlikely candidates. No matter where, what your status is, God chooses the unlikely. Martin Luther's last words were, we are beggars. This is true. And that should be our attitude. We're just beggars in the presence of a king, as Matthew West sings. We wish we could bring so much more. But if it's true that you use broken things, then here I am, Lord. I'm all yours. We're all the unlikely candidate for salvation. God chooses the unlikely. God chooses the weird. Or as Steve Pettit says, the gospel light attracts strange bugs. And we are one of them, right? Now, in summary, our culture can overemphasize how terrible rich people are, and we should be aware of that. 
and, and bring the biblical data to bear on that. But in response to that, we shouldn't downplay the real warnings and dangers of riches that we find in Scripture. Instead, we should stay in our circle. We should evaluate our own hearts and see how are we treating our stuff? Are we putting dependence on it, even though we know it'll fade away? And we should choose to cut out any materialism that's in our lives. Because we know that it is God's sovereignty that makes us safer than being a billionaire ever could. God's shepherding care keeps us safe and secure far better than the riches that we see fading all around us ever could. Now, as we wrap up, how do we apply this? What is James calling us to do on the basis of this passage? Well, three things for us. First of all, we need to surrender. Same thing he said earlier in chapter 4. Submit to God. Go low. Because remember, those who go low are exalted. But those who go high in pride or in riches or in their stuff or in their schedules, God will bring them low. He actually says back in chapter 1 that we can boast even in our humiliation. Even when we don't have it all together, even when we don't have the finances, even when we're on the down and out, he says we can boast. Not about our wealth, but about our God. We can boast in him. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12 that we can even boast in our weaknesses because they prove that the God we serve is strong. All that we have is a gift from God. And he promises in Philippians 4.19 that he will provide what we need. He will be a good shepherd to us. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I shall not lack anything. He will take care of me, even if it means bringing me through a time of financial difficulty or some sort of trial. He will be with me, and I can choose to count it joy and surrender to his sovereignty. Here's some phrases for you to meditate on this week. In fact, here's a challenge. So I gave you the challenge not to be critical at all last week. Here's a new challenge. See how much you can insert this phrase into your daily conversation. If the Lord wills. Now you have to mean it. Don't just insert it willy-nilly. But when you're announcing what you're going to do, try to intentionally remind yourself of God's will, of what God wants you to do, of God's purposes by saying, if the Lord wills, I will do this or that. Just acknowledging that he's in charge and that you're not. And that he is your king and you are his servant. Or perhaps you should just pray this prayer that Jesus gave us. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Just make it your daily prayer. Your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Or maybe you make some of these verses the background of your phone or put them on your dashboard. Proverbs sixteen nine: The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Or Proverbs 19, 21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Great truths to meditate on to help us surrender and go low to God's will, God's plan over ours. Secondly, I want us to see as God sees. Choose to view people through the lens that God views people with. Go back to what Scott preached on in chapter 2. Don't discriminate against the poor nor discriminate against the rich. And sometimes we can do one or the other or both. Jesus treated all the same. He treated Nicodemus the same way he treated the woman at the well. He is the God who chooses both Abraham's and Rahab's. And we should choose to see people through that lens. We shouldn't be jealous of those better off than us and criticize them, nor should we demean people who seem to be on the down and out. Instead, we should follow Romans twelve sixteen: Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. 
he could have said, associate with the weird. Hang out with the lowly, the people society looks down upon. Because those are the sorts of people that Jesus hung out with. Are we turning up our nose at the sort of people Jesus pursued? Are we turning up our nose at the kind of people that we actually are? Because we're all weird, we're all lowly, and yet God saved us? See as God sees. And then finally, share your wealth with others who are in need. To whom much is given, much is required in Luke 12. So do you hoard on to what you have? That's what James calls out in the rich people. They, they kept back the wages. They kept a tight grasp on their riches, even though they were rotten and fading. Or do you have open hands when it comes to your stuff? Are you willing to share? Do you give of your means to help those less fortunate, as James called us to do in chapter 1, the widow and the orphan? Or do you do what James condemns in chapter 2, 16? Do you just say, hey, be warmed and filled, but you don't do anything for these needy people? Faith works. Steadfast faith will share with others. And here's just a few ideas to get your, your mind going. Perhaps the Spirit would lead you to meet some of these needs. Think about nursing homes or assisted living centers. I've been seeing several articles popping up about the number of people in those places who have no family to visit and they have no friends to visit. They don't get any visitors. Talk about a mission field in our community. Talk about people, literal widows many times, who we could go to with the love of Jesus right here in our town. We'll talk about orphans. Think about the Piedmont Women's Center and the great work they are doing to encourage women to choose life. We shouldn't just be pro-life in theory. We should be pursuing those, especially those who have chosen life and helping them as much as we can. And they have many opportunities for that. Or a real simple one, Operation Christmas Child, helping orphans all over the world with just a simple token that can open a gospel conversation. Or think about those who are from all sorts of different countries in our community, the internationals or the refugees. The mission field has come right here to Greenville. We've got all sorts of people from countries that you and I could never even get into with the gospel who have no family and no friends. And they're studying at places like Clemson or Furman or all over, and we can reach out to them with the love of Jesus. You know, it's, it's a sad truth that we often have plenty of people to help with discipleship opportunities in the church, but we often seem to be struggling with those ministries that require us to reach outside. It always seems that we don't have enough people in, in areas among maybe the least of these. Good News Club, the basketball ministry, uh, the net teams that go out and hand out information on our church. It seems we never have enough people. Can we be so complacent in ourselves that we all enjoy growing together, but we don't share with those outside? It's so much so that we've, we've had to neglect opportunities that maybe present themselves for us to take extra steps of reaching out because we just don't have enough volunteers. That should not be the case. We should be people who share of what we have, much or little, with those who are in need. We should be evangelistic, not just waiting for the new lead pastor to come to make us evangelistic. We should be doing the work right now to prepare our hearts to share with those in need. Well, I want to end with some hope for us, not just end on a guilt trip here, because without this, we would never be compelled to share and to reach out. We should not park ourselves in an Ecclesiastes life we should not park ourselves and just thinking, ah, time goes on and death is coming and just kind of park there. That book was given to us to show us what life looks like when you pursue other things other than God. But now a greater than Solomon has come, Jesus Christ. And yes, it's true what Solomon said. Death does come for all. And yet 
we believe in a Savior who conquered death. A Savior who became missed like us and suffered death just as each of us will and yet did not stay dead, triumphed over death, resurrected. And one day we'll do the same for us. Yes, life feels many days, especially on Monday, like chasing the wind. It's just futile. And yet Jesus has caught the wind for us and placed the spirit of God, the very breath of God into our hearts who are believers. And he is always working on us, sanctifying us. Yes, there's nothing new under the sun. And yet we know simultaneously Jesus will make all things new. And he has made us who are in him a new creation. Yes, all around us, folks are collecting stuff and making their plans or being successful. But we have Jesus. And Jesus is better than our stuff. I saw this picture on the internet this week. Here's a guy with all these boxes. And he's looking at the guy who has one box that just says Jesus. And he says, is that all you need? And the man who just says Jesus says, yes. With Jesus and nothing, we have everything. We are Christians who possess nothing and yet have everything. So do you have Jesus today? If you do not have him, know that he loves those who are lowly, the beggar, and there's hope for all who are lowly, who repent of their sins and trust in him. If you lower yourself, he will exalt you. But for all of us, have we been exalting ourselves thinking we're sovereign? Let's go low, my friends. And let's turn our eyes away from all the boxes of stuff in the world today, all our plans, all our self-sufficiency, and say, God, I am dependent on you. Let us turn our eyes off of the things of world and on to the things of Christ. And when we do, as the song we're about to say says, the things of earth will grow strangely dim. Friends, let's look to Christ. Let's pray. Oh, we look to you. We are so needy, God. We are so dependent and we repent. We turn from all the ways we've tried to do it our own way, to be self-sufficient this week, to look to stuff, to plans, to schedules, to do what only you can do for us. You are our good shepherd. You make us safe. We praise you. We exalt you, sovereign God. Thank you for what you were doing. Help us to turn our eyes to you, not just now, but Lord, give us a spirit of turning to you all this week long. Put into our words this phrase, if you will, not my will, but yours be done. So, oh, spirit, remind us of that day after day when we're so prone to get busy and distracted. Keep us centered on you. Keep our eyes on you. We pray this in Jesus' name.